0: Welcome, you are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today I'll be reading articles from Denverite and Westward. From Denverite, I'll be reading, A massive affordable housing project just broke ground in Northeast Park Hill. Neighbors say the community needs more than homes, by Kyle Harris. And Missing indigenous woman Christine Tale was found safely after her partner faced delays in reaching law enforcement, by Desiree Matherin. From Westward, I'll be reading, Killer of fabulous Boogie Knots singer Jennifer Galvin will be sentenced today by Benito L. Kelty, and, RTD is free in July and August, here's what you need to know, by Katie Cheshire. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. These first two articles are from Denverite. A massive affordable housing project just broke ground in Northeast Park Hill. Neighbors say the community needs more than homes, by Kyle Harris. For weeks, bulldozers have been digging up the old metro taxi lot at 38th Avenue and Forest Street in Northeast Park Hill. They're making way for Denver's largest income-restricted housing project since outgoing Mayor Michael Hancock formed the Department of Housing Stability (HOST) in 2019. The new development is sandwiched between residential Northeast Park Hill, a community of mostly one-story brick ranch houses built after World War II, and an industrial part of the neighborhood that mayor-elect Mike Johnston said would likely see an increase in development in the next couple of decades longtime community organizer Lamon Knowles said she expects the arrival of that development as well and she's afraid the longtime black residents who have lived in nearby houses some since the 60s will be strategically priced out by skyrocketing property taxes as new development arrives It's happened in cities nationwide, and she's watched it here, too, with the city doing too little to stop displacement," she said. In many cases, she feels the city has enabled it. City officials say the new income-restricted housing will keep low- and middle-income residents in the community. The new project will include a mix of home sizes, including a number of three- and four-bedroom units for larger families, plus a clubhouse with an educational wing dedicated to early childhood learning. Del West Development Corporation, the project's developer, dubbed it Holly 38. It will include 253 income-restricted homes. This development, when placed in service and open for occupancy, will serve incomes from 30% of the area median income all the way up to 80% of the area median income, said Catherine Grosscup of the Colorado Housing and Finance Authority, which used low-income housing credits to help fund the project. So this could be households with incomes at a $30,000 a year or less all the way up to households who have $80,000 a year or less. Some residents who receive vouchers from the Denver Housing Authority will pay no more than 30% of their income on rent, even if they're earning nothing, according to a release from the Department of Housing Stability. Don't let anyone tell you Denver is sleeping on affordable housing, said Hancock. As he departs, well aware that Denver's cost of living has driven many longtime residents out, Hancock's pointing to the things his administration was able to do to try to keep people housed in town. Since July 2011, the Hancock administration has supported the building or preservation of over 10,000 affordable units in neighborhoods across the city, according to a statement from hosts. A total of 1,611 affordable units that have received city financing are currently under construction at 16 sites throughout Denver. An additional 541 income-restricted units are in the planning stage. Mathematically speaking, that's a fraction of what's needed. Denver Housing Authority Executive Director David Nisivoccia recently told Denverite the total number of income-restricted units Denver needs to catch up with demand is closer to 60,000 and growing as affordability becomes an increasing concern across the city. But every unit helps, and the city and developers are quick to celebrate them all. If you're going to end on a note, this is the note that you end on. The District 8 council member Chris Herndon who is also finishing his own final term. He celebrated Del West's communication with the neighbor and how they wanted to make sure this community was going to be for this, this community and there were countless conversations they had. Del West came to the table and that should be applauded because a lot of builders don't engage community the way that Del West did. Too much of the community outreach had taken place outside the neighborhood and in South Park Hill, said Knowles, head of the East Denver Residents Council, while attending the groundbreaking. Knowles felt the developer could have done more to speak to people living across the street from the property under development. Neighbors were taken off guard when construction fences went up and bulldozing began, and only then, according to Knowles, did the developer really engage locally. Too often, when developers reach out to registered neighborhood organizations in the area, they focus on the Greater Park Hill Community, Incorporated, which represents the area but is located in the wealthier, whiter Park Hill, south of Martin Luther King Boulevard," Knowles explained. Dell West would have done better to speak more to the Northeast Park Hill Coalition, which solely represents the community where the Holly 38 is being built. Neighbors have expressed concerns about limited parking, the effects of construction on their quality of life, and a lack of engagement with the project. It's going to be a lot of disruption for the neighborhood, Knowles said, and that's the hard part. We've got a lot of seniors that live here. She was troubled by officials at the groundbreaking characterizing the surrounding community as poor, particularly since many people in the area have paid their homes in full. When I hear the word poor directed at folks who are homeowners, how are they poor if they own, she asked. Knowles is also concerned that the developers and investors are the only people getting wealthy from the development. She fears surrounding neighbors, who have been paying property taxes for decades, will see no return, and she plans to advocate for that to change. We're just going to monitor what they're doing, she said and we also expect them to keep the community through the neighborhood organizations up-to-date on what they're doing to minimize any types of conflicts. She also wants to see more commercial activity in the area, and remembers fondly when Northeast Park Hill was a walkable, mixed-use community with vibrant commerce in Holly and Dahlia Squares and plenty of jobs from nearby Stapleton Airport. This neighborhood here was set up to fail years ago, and it didn't, she said. It went from a neighborhood to a community, and people have raised, raised generations of children here. We had neighborhood schools. We also had our own retail, commerce that has been taken out. And it concerns me, because when a neighborhood doesn't have their own commerce, then they are going to be targeted for extinction. Helen Bradshaw, a resident in the area, fought for the redevelopment of the nearby Park Hill golf course. She was disappointed that voters shot down the proposal that would have brought the neighborhood housing, commerce, space for a grocery store, and the city's fourth-largest park, all to protect a private golf course. That's in the past now, and she sees possibility again in Holly 38. I believe that this is a start, she said, but it's not everything. We need resources and opportunity, not just housing in the neighborhood. Bradshaw sees Holly 38 as the start of what could have been created at the Park Hill golf course site, even if there is still no plan for what that project promised. Still, she has hope that changes are coming. We're getting community started, she said, looking out at the future home of Holly 38. We just started right here. Missing Indigenous woman Christine Tail was found safely after her partner faced delays in reaching law enforcement by Desiree Matherin, Christine Tale, an indigenous woman affiliated with the Oglala Sioux Tribe who went missing earlier this month, was found in the morning hours of Wednesday. The Colorado Bureau of Investigation announced days after her case gained national attention. Before the alert was issued, Tale was last seen by her partner, Tanya Lance, on June 14th at the intersection of Champa and 14th Street in the Central Business District. The pair had just arrived in Denver from Rapid City, South Dakota, to start a new life. Lance said she and Tail were discussing their future when Tail walked away, turned a corner, and disappeared. Lance's family contacted Denver Police the following day and left several voicemails with the Missing and Exploited Person Unit, but days passed before they heard back. Nobody ever called us back. I was calling all morning, and I was beginning to beg them not to transfer me, said Amanda, Lance's sister. I said, it's been three days. Time is important when somebody goes missing. Dispatch transferred the family members to the voicemail system for the missing and exploited person unit. After leaving the voicemail, they waited until an officer returned the call. DPD's missing persons unit is a two-person team supervised by a lieutenant. DPD officials said due to large caseloads, an officer from the unit wasn't able to get back to the family immediately. Amanda said the last time she called that Saturday, begging not to be transferred back to the voicemail, she was told the report should have been filed in person, something the family didn't know was required. DPD said in a statement that on June seventeenth a family member called the Emergency Communication Center to report a missing person at 10.39 a.m., and an officer was dispatched at 10.58 a.m. and took the reported information. After officers spoke with family members, more issues came up. Since TAIL is indigenous, a missing indigenous person alert should have been immediately activated, according to state law. The MIPA system was established in late 2022 along with the accompanying Office of Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives in Colorado, MMIR, as a way to help bring awareness and eventually solve crimes involving the indigenous community, which sees a disproportionately high rate of missing people in homicide cases compared to other racial or ethnic groups. According to the MMIR Bill, SB 22150, Law enforcement is supposed to identify CBI within 8 hours of receiving a missing person report involving an adult and 2 hours for a missing child. The goal of the MMIR Task Force is to push these cases into the limelight, and the complementary alert system was created to help stop the missing cases from going cold. Amanda works for the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women USA, a nonprofit similar to the MMIR Task Force. She knew to reach out to the Colorado task force to get more eyes on Taylor's case, especially with the police response she received. Once officers spoke with the family, Amanda said she expected them to contact the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. CBI is in charge of issuing the alert, but that didn't happen. DPD said that there was an internal misunderstanding after the report was taken as to whether CBI had already begun the MIPA alert and the supervisor contacted CBI immediately after learning the alert had not been sent out. DPD added that they will be reviewing the case to ensure that in the future their response is timely and in accordance with state law. CBI issued the alert on June 18th, four days after Tail went missing. The alert was also wrong when it was issued. It listed an incorrect date of when Tail was last seen, and it included an old description of her. That information was corrected on June 20th. There was a lot of runaround, Amanda said. There was a lot of miscommunication between the departments. None of them knew what to do. It was really frustrating and a lot of wasted time. It happens a lot. There are departments like this that don't seem to care. On June 28th, Lance said she received a call from an officer stating that they'd been in contact with Tail and she was safe though the officer said Tail was uninterested in reconnecting with Lance. Denverite has been unable to reach Tail for comment. DPT confirmed that Tail reached out to an outside law enforcement department to let officials know she was not missing nor was she in need of assistance. Neither DPD or CBI would confirm to Denverite what law enforcement agency found Tail. After making contact, if the officer does not see any indication of harm or danger to the individual or the person reported missing does not articulate any crime then they are allowed to go on along their way and the case is closed DPD said this is the case for non-criminal missing persons a cases involving adults according to the CBI 21 alerts have been issued as of June 29 including tails alert of the other 19 alerts One person was found dead and the others were found safely. On the day tail was found, two additional alerts were issued and they are currently still active. Sherelle Lucinda Begay was last seen on June 13th in Denver. She's 26 years old, just over 5 feet tall with brown hair and eyes. She's affiliated with the Navajo tribe and she may be experiencing homelessness. Jordan Trefoya was last seen on June 19th, also in Denver. She's 14 years old with black hair and she's about 5 feet 6 inches tall. She's affiliated with the Northern Arapaho Tribe. If either person is seen, CBI suggests calling 911 or DPD directly at 720-913-2000. DPD recommends family members call 911 or the number above if a loved one goes missing so that an officer is dispatched to take the report and notify an MEP supervisor detective. If the person is indigenous, then DPD will contact CBI. The following articles are from Westward. Killer of Fabulous Boogie Knots singer Jennifer Gelvin will be sentenced today by Benito L. Kelty More than a year and a half has passed since Jennifer Gelvin, singer for the Fabulous Boogie Knots, and her friend, Catherine Pivota, were stabbed to death at Pivota's home by Matthew Madden, Pivota's estranged ex-husband. Today, June 30th, 38-year-old Madden will finally be sentenced in Denver District Court for killing Gelvin and Pavoda. He pleaded guilty to two counts of second-degree murder in April. Gelvin was killed just a few weeks after her husband, Keith Rouse, the fabulous Boogie knotts trumpeter, died from a heart attack. The couple had two teenage children, daughter Jada and son Jazz. Gelvin had met Rouse before The Fabulous Boogie Knots was founded in 1996. Gelvin was one of the original band members. Rouse joined in 2002. She was my best friend for 25 years, says Rocky Ramjet, who started the Denver disco band. It still affects us. That's never going to go away. The Fabulous Boogie Knots were a 10-member ensemble known for high energy and sometimes sci-fi themed funk and rock and roll. The Boogie Knots were the house band for the Denver Nuggets and also played for the Denver Broncos. They released an album, Fully Functional, in 2013. Gelvin was the finest performer I ever worked with, Ramjet says. She was on stage even when she wasn't on stage. She was born to do what she did, a born entertainer. Rouse was one of the best workers you could ask for, he adds, and made every day interesting. At around midnight on September 29, 2021, Gelvin was visiting Pavoda, a fourth-year doctoral student and English teacher at the University of Colorado Denver, at her home on the 2200 block of South Marion Street near the University of Denver. Madden had stopped living at the house that summer, according to Denver Police Department records. A couple living next door to Pavoda called the police to report what sounded like domestic violence They said they'd heard somebody screaming, get out, get out, at around 12.09 a.m., before the house went silent. Then they heard someone crying. They thought it was a woman. It was Madden. When police arrived at the scene, they found Madden bloody and holding a knife, which he refused to drop. The police tased him, and he was transported to Denver Health, where he was treated for cuts on his neck, arm, and chest. The police found Gelvin and Pavota in the backyard. Both had been stabbed to death. Police found Pavota's two children, a newborn and a toddler, sleeping inside the house. Pavota's family raised more than $48,000 for her two children through a GoFundMe page. The Gelvin family raised more than $113,000 through a GoFundMe page to support the singer's two children. Jada was 17 when her parents died. Jazz was 14 at the time. He now plays the drums, though he wasn't into drums when when his parents were alive, says Ramjet. They've adjusted well. They're doing the best they can. The fabulous Boogie Nots performed live at Herman's Hideaway on June 16th. It was their first concert since a benefit for Jada and Jazz Rouse in December of 2021. The band was working on another album with the tentative title Too Funk to Drunction at the time of Gilvin and Rouse's deaths. Gelvin had suggested the title, and the band members are continuing to work on the album using bits of music that Gelvin left behind. We want to represent her the best we can, Ramjet says. It's going to happen, but it'll get done when it gets done. Madden is scheduled to be sentenced at 2.30 p.m. on June 30th. RTD is free in July and August. Here's What You Need to Know by Katie Cheshire Starting July 1st, All RTD services are free until the end of August in an expansion of last year's Zero fare for Better Air initiative, which was designed to encourage more people to use public transit and reduce ozone during a hot Colorado summer. The goal of the campaign is to help people build new commuting habits and reduce ground-level ozone during the highest ozone months, says Tina Jackiz, public relations manager for RTD. The free rides were made possible by a grant program through the Colorado Energy Office. The program was established by a 2022 bill sponsored by Senators Faith Winter and Nick Henrichen and Representatives Matt Gray and Jennifer Bacon. That successful measure appropriated funds to reimburse transit agencies for the revenue when fares were made free. In 2023, that same group of legislators without Gray, but with the addition of State Representative Stephanie Vigil, created more flexibility for such programs, allowing transit agencies to recover 100% of costs instead of the original 80% under the 2022 bill. The total cost of zero fare for better air when RTD offered free rides last August was approximately 10.3 million dollars. The state provided 7.2 million dollars. This year, RTD contributed $2.2 million for setup costs, and the state will cover an estimated $15 million in lost fare revenue. That expanded contribution allowed RTD to extend the program into July. While it is designed to help eliminate tailpipe emissions of ozone precursors and decrease the number of ozone action alert days that Colorado experiences, there were 46 in 2022, the program also has a goal of encouraging more public transit. So much of this is how do we fill up those trains and buses and take better advantage of the system we already have, says Danny Katz, executive director of the Colorado Public Interest Research Group, a nonprofit consumer advocacy organization. According to RTD's zero fair August impact analysis released in November, people definitely took advantage of the program last year. Overall ridership increased 22% from July to August and 36% from August 2021. Once people had to pay again in September, much of the increase in weekday ridership stayed, but commuter rail on Saturdays dropped with a 17.8% decline from the August numbers. According to RTD, that decline could have been the result of fewer sports events near light rail stops. With two months of free travel instead of one in 2023, ridership should increase more, Katz says, noting that in the first few weeks last August, people still weren't fully aware that they could use transit for free. More people are going to be looking for this because of last summer, he says. Coperg is part of a coalition of groups, mostly nonprofits, including Denver Streets Partnership, Green Latinos, and the Downtown Denver Partnership, that created a free Transit Denver website to help the community engage. It offers suggestions on where public transit can take you around Metro Denver, including including music venues and cultural attractions like the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. We've been doing a lot to try to get major venues to put information on their websites, because that can be a real game changer if we have our sports stadiums, our concert halls, our theaters, all encouraging people to use transit to get to their events. Katz says, that's a big thing that I don't think we really nailed last year. In a survey conducted after the inaugural program, 45% of respondents said that they were more likely to use RTD services in the future because of zero fare for better air. Even so, RTD's November analysis found that it was difficult to quantify actual air quality impacts of the 2022 program. Today, RTD touts six benefits of the program on its website – saving money, improving air quality, reducing stress, saving time, reducing traffic, and saving gas. It has a calculator that people can use to determine what their savings would be if they used free transit for two months instead of commuting. For those who need help planning trips, there's RTD Next Ride, a service with real-time transit information. Katz says he's excited to use RTD's bus service to Nederland, as well as organize other families in his neighborhood to take the 52 bus line to Old Town Arvada for a night of fun. Last year, he used RTD to explore some of Aurora's restaurants. There's a lot of opportunity for families because too often, if you're riding transit as a family, you're paying multiple tickets, and that adds up, he says. This is a really great moment for families to hop on the weekends and get to some of these farmers' markets and go out to eat. While some people worry about RTD safety, Katz says that the more people use public transit, the safer it is. According to RTD's analysis, security incidents did not increase last August. In fact, security incidents declined 17% year-over-year from 47 in August of 2021 to 39 in August of 2022, the report states. Vandalism and biohazard incidents did increase, but crime report data showed no major increase in drug-related complaints during zero fare for better air. Calls related to disturbances, narcotics, and trespassing in August of 2022 were all below the monthly average for the first seven months of 2022, according to the report. Employee opinion of the program was generally positive. Some participants noted an increase in non-destination individuals aboard transit vehicles, but most did not report significant impacts to operations as a result of the presence of these individuals, the report says. RTD just implemented a new code of conduct called Respect the Ride, partially to address people who get on buses or trains and ride them without going anywhere often people experiencing homelessness who use transit as a way to escape the elements. The proposal for the new Code of Conduct originally included harsher crackdowns on non-destination riders, but the policy was changed because of civil rights concerns. The new Respect the Ride rules do place bans on people remaining on RTD property who aren't using its services who are engaging in harassment. A policy that gives more latitude to security to suspend people who violate the code of conduct was also put in place. As RTD works to become safer, people can enjoy the chance to explore more of Metro Denver for free. Last year highlighted all the reasons transit is important, Katz says. People don't ride it for one reason. Some people ride it because they don't want to be stuck in traffic and it can be a much more pleasant experience to read a book Relax and let somebody else do the driving for you. Others don't own a car. They don't have any other option, or their car broke down. There are a lot of benefits to a good transit system. E-bikes everywhere. Bike to Work Day highlights success of Denver's rebate program by Benjamin Neufeld. Today, June 28th, is Bike to Work Day, and Denver has a lot of new riders on the road thanks to the city's e-bike rebate, pro- rebate program that started just over a year ago. In a city full of tough problems and even tougher solutions, Denver's e-bike rebate program has been a definite win. While it can't solve the climate crisis on its own, city officials, mobility data analysts, and new e-bike riders all say the program is having a real impact on reducing car travel in the city. According to Emily Gedeon, Director of Communications and Engagement for Denver's Department of Climate Action, Sustainability and Resiliency CASR. the program has put 5,974 e-bikes on the streets—and counting. Based on results from a survey conducted last year, the average e-bike voucher redeemer replaced 3.4 car trips and traveled 21.6 miles weekly, says Gideon. Income-qualified residents made more trips per week and replaced over 40% more miles of car trips each week. According to a 2022 report, e-bikes from Denver's program displace 4.1 million vehicle miles, eliminate 1,447 tons of greenhouse gas emissions every year, and save Denver residents $1 million in fuel and maintenance costs. Speaking at a CASR-hosted rally for new e-bike riders at Sculpture Park on June 10th, Grace Rink, the Chief Climate Officer for the City and County of Denver and Executive Director of CASR, said e-bike riders are collectively replacing over 100,000 car miles per week. Rink added that other cities throughout the country have begun creating e-bike rebate programs because of the success of Denver's. We have received calls from over 50 cities that want to do the exact same thing, she said. We truly are creating a transportation revolution. It's definitely spreading around the state. The Colorado Energy Office recently announced a statewide e-bike rebate program that will launch in August. It will offer $500 vouchers and $1,100 vouchers to income-qualified individuals. And Boulder just announced its own e-bike rebate program. Beginning at 9 a.m. on July 6, Boulder residents can apply for $300 regular e-bike vouchers or $500 e-cargo bike vouchers with $1,200 and $1,400 income-qualified vouchers. 200 vouchers total are available in the first application round. Round 2 will start in September. History shows that those 200 vouchers will be gone fast. Denver first announced its program on April 22, 2022. By May 11th, CASR had to stop accepting voucher applications because it had already received 3,250. Denver has had several more rounds of rebates since then, including three so far this year. Each time, the available vouchers have been snatched up within minutes. The last round took place on May 30th. Applications opened at 11 a.m and were gone by 11.06. Denver resident Margot Ryan put in her application the moment a Denver rebate round started on January 31st. My husband and I each had alarms, she recalls. The rebate was a significant factor for us, says Ryan. I don't know that we would necessarily have gotten an e-bike without the rebate. Her voucher arrived in early February, and she got her e-bike soon after. She has used it to replace many car trips, including all kinds of errands, and even taking her kids to school. Ryan and her family live in Baker, but her son plays rugby at North High School and practices there at 5 p.m. on weekdays. Trying to get from Baker to North at 5 p.m. is horrible by car. It's deadly, says Ryan. It actually takes us the same amount of time to e-bike, but it's a really lovely trip. According to an e-bike program analysis released on March 7th, 29% of Denver e-bike redeemers who completed the program survey indicated they were new to riding. That analysis survey was done by Ride Report, a company that collects bike and e-bike mobility data, as well as the City of Denver and a few other organizations. Denver's standard e-bike rebate program offers a $300 voucher and $500 voucher for regular e-bikes and cargo e-bikes, respectively. Income-qualified rebates go up to $1,200 and $1,400. When the program was launched, standard rebates were $400 with a $500 bonus for those looking to get an e-cargo bike. CASR's Gideon notes that $5.6 million has been spent on the rebate program so far, with that money coming from the city's Climate Protection Fund. The CPF raises $40 million annually from a .25% sales tax passed in Denver in 2020. This morning, Denver's Department of Transportation and Infrastructure will host a breakfast station in front of the Denver and City County building to commemorate Bike to Work Day. Mayor Michael Hancock will be on hand, riding around on an e-bike. The event will also celebrate the city's construction of 140 miles of new bike lanes since 2018, for a total of 436 miles of bikeways throughout the city. Says DOTI marketing and communications specialist Vanessa Licayo. The timing as we continue to accelerate and prioritize building out our bike network aligns well with the rebates by carving out dedicated space on the street for people that want to ride and supporting the use of bikes and e-bikes as a viable mode of transportation and not just for recreation. The goal is to increase safety for all, reduce transportation pollution by making cycling an easier and more comfortable option, and to minimize conflicts with people in cars, LaCayo concludes. The next round of Denver e-bike rebates will be released on July 25th. Denver City Council Approves La Rasa Park as Third Historic Cultural District by Benito L. Kelty. Chicanos started gathering at La Raza Park for speeches, graduations, and quinceaneras as 60 years ago when the park in northwest Denver still had a pool and a different name. Denver City Council chose to honor that history on June 26th, when its members voted unanimously to make La Raza Park the city's third historic cultural district, a rare designation given to geographic communities that have had a significant cultural impact on Denver. The only other two areas that carry that title are the Five Points Historic Cultural District, since 2002, and La Alma-Lincoln Park Historic Cultural District, since 2019. Since 1967, Denver City Council has designated 360 individual landmarks and 58 historic districts for preservation but only 13% of those designations are explicitly including historically excluded communities, according to the city. The historic cultural designation will allow La Raza to add recreational amenities while protecting the architecture and artwork in the park, which sits in the Sunnyside neighborhood at the corner of West 38th Avenue and Osage Street. Diane Medina, who has lived near the park for nearly 50 years, says the designation is also a validation that this is a special place. It's not just about the preservation of those features, such as the kiosco, the murals, and the sculpture. It's also to highlight in mainstream media and to my colleagues on council and to the public, the significance that the Chicano movement played in the makeup of Denver, says Councilwoman Amanda Sandoval, whose district includes the park. Sandoval introduced the proposal for La Raza's designation in late May after a study by the city titled Nuestras Historias, Mexican-American Chicano-Latino his- Histories in Denver, concluded that public officials need to diversify the Denver landmark portfolio with more sites and districts for underrepresented groups. Sandoval says the park played a significant role in her upbringing and that she attended quinceañeras, Dia de los Muertos festivals, and summer solstice celebrations there. In 2020, the councilwoman succeeded in having the park renamed La Raza Park. A similar effort had failed in 1988, when now council member at large Debbie Ortega represented the district. La Raza Park was then known as Columbus Park. This part of town had been home to a large Italian community in the early, early 20th century. But after the neighborhood became mostly Latino and the park became an important gathering place, the push to rename it offered a sense of community control and the idea that residents had some say over the place where they lived. La Raza means the race, or the people, and the term was prominent during the Chicano movement of the 1960s and 70s. The Mexican American Youth Organization, a Chicano group from Texas, created the La Raza Unida Political Party in 1970. The Southwest Council of La Raza, a civil rights advocacy group, formed in Arizona in 1968. By then, the Denver Park had become the site of both community celebrations and violent confrontations with police. The poor conditions of its pool sparked splash-ins by young Chicano activists in the summer of 1969, when Latino kids would visit public pools in affluent white neighborhoods in southeast Denver to demand equal access to city amenities. One of the activists who worked as a lifeguard at La Raza Park was Nita Gonzalez, the daughter of Crusade for Justice founder Rudolfo Corky Gonzalez. With Gonzalez in the lead, the Crusade for Justice organized the splash-ins just a few months after the group worked with students to push the West High School blowouts in what would later become La Alma Lincoln Park. Corgi Gonzalez used the park for graduations for Escuela Tataloco, the dual language alternative school he founded. In 1972, the Crusade for Justice opened Servicios de la Raza a few blocks from the park, offering the Chicano community affordable, bilingual social services. But the park itself could be a battleground. On June 28, 1981, when hundreds of men, women, and children came to the park to celebrate the start of summer, police told them to disperse, then release tear gas and attack dogs, according to the landmark designation application. The role La Rasa played as a liberated area under community control is a source of pride for the community today, as it was in the 1970s, the application notes. While La Rasa Park is only Denver's third historic cultural district, there could soon be a fourth. Gay community members are pushing to create the city's first queer cultural district in an area they've dubbed Lavender Hill, which includes parts of Capitol Hill, City Park West, Cheeseman Park, Baker, and Five Points. Inside Kenny Passarelli and Amy Loper's Unusual Musical Love Story by Michael Roberts Colorado Music Hall of Fame inductee Kenny Passarelli has worked with some of the most famous singers in pop and rock, but Amy Loper, the other half of a duo they've dubbed Forever Is Now, is easily the most unlikely vocal partner in his storied career. Before she met Passarelli, Loper wasn't a musician at all. She was a divorce lawyer whose only performances were in court, not on a stage. I'd never written a lyric or even stood up and sung in front of anybody, she says. But now we've performed together in New York City. It's mind-boggling. Passarelli, who was once my in-law through a previous marriage, understands that this musical match may seem bizarre at first blush, but it makes perfect sense to him. We've found something really incredible, he says, and the great thing is we do it together a Mile High City native who attended both East High School and the University of Denver, Passarelli became a master of the bass guitar. I ended up getting my first big break with Joe Walsh in 1972. As a member of Barnstorm, a trio that included the future Eagles guitarist and drummer Joe Vitale, Passarelli co-wrote Rocky Mountain Way, a classic rock staple that became the theme song for the Colorado Rockies. After a couple of years touring with Walsh, I left to work with Stephen Stills, and from there, I got the best gig ever, playing with Elton John in 1975 and 1976, mostly in stadiums, Passarelli recalls. Then, when Elton decided to take a hiatus, I went to work with Daryl Hall and John Oates for almost three years, touring and recording. After that, I got a call to come back to Colorado and work with Dan Fogelberg for the 1981 album The Innocent Age. It had four top 10 singles. It's Dan's masterpiece. In 1986, Passarelli semi-retired, in his words, but he remained active musically, playing on and producing some of the finest work by bluesman Otis Taylor, among other things. He also focused on songwriting and by the time I met Amy in 2015 I had an enormous amount of music that didn't have lyrics Loper hardly seemed to be the most likely candidate for filling this gap I practiced law from 1980 to the end of 2018 she says I did commercial trial law but because I was the only woman at the firm and divorce law was considered women's work she laughs I did divorce work too And when I left that firm in 1995, I concentrated on divorce until I retired. The couple connected romantically before they did as songsmiths. But in August of 2019, Loper contributed her first set of lyrics to a Passarelli melody. Not long thereafter, they produced Otraves, a strongly theatrical composition that was kind of the beginning of Forever Is Now, says Loper, who's gifted with a deep, commanding contralto. The phrase is in the song, Otra Vez, means another time in Spanish, but it's actually more complicated and layered than that. And there was magic between us right away, a magic connection between this complex melody and words by someone who'd never written lyrics before. Since then, the creative combination has flourished. We have over a 100 copywritten songs, Passarelli reveals, Amy being a slave-driving lawyer, and me being a bum musician, she wrangles me. But we work really hard. That's why we've gotten really good. We practice every day." The pair subsequently created a show that tells the tale of their relationship, complete with dialogue between Loper and Passarelli that highlights their unexpected team-up. The stories don't necessarily unfold in chronological order, Loper reveals. It starts out with the idea of who these people are, and through music, we tell a couple of funny stories about what it's like to be a rock and roll superstar. To that end, the original material is interspersed with Life of Illusion, another Walsh hit for which Passarelli wrote the music, and an unusual rendition of Rocky Mountain Way. I play it on the banjo, he says. Try that on for size. Their production was staged at an off-Broadway theater in Manhattan last year. But Loper feels tweaks made to its scheduled Denver debut at Dazzle on Wednesday, June 26th, have made the piece even stronger. We've created a new art form, and part of that is not really knowing how to do it, she says. But now we've learned how to tell the story, adds Passarelli. I just think that the sheer craziness of two people coming from such different worlds who have a domestic life in this creative presentation will invigorate and inspire. Forever is now, 7 p.m. Wednesday, July 26th, Dazzle, Denver, 1512 Curtis Street. Tickets are $25. Henry Winkler, AKA The Fonz, discusses his storied career ahead of Fan Expo Denver by Teague Bolin. TV legend Henry Winkler is bringing his unique brand of super cool to Fan Expo Denver this weekend as one of the events many special celebrity guests. Winkler will be there as part of the Scream crew of stars but his list of career credits far surpasses even that fan favorite franchise. From his decade-long work on Happy Days to his producer and voice acting work, as well as his Emmy Award-winning role on Barry, Winkler has enjoyed a storied career and become an entertainment icon. Not only was he the Fonz, a character TV guide once named as one of the medium's most memorable characters of all time, but in the 1970s, he was everywhere. Lunchboxes, comic books, vinyl albums, school notebooks, Saturday morning cartoons. In 1976, the MEGO Corporation made an 8-inch action figure that could extend its thumbs in the requisite gesture. A bronze statue of him was erected in 2008 in the Happy Days city of Milwaukee. His ubiquitous leather jacket now hangs in the Smithsonian. That was an amazement, Winkler reflects. He added that he owns at least one of the many toys created after Arthur Fonzarelli, even up to the present day with collectible Funko Pops. It's been incredible, Winkler says. You can never tell what's going to happen or how things will turn out, but I've been able to live my dream to the nth degree. One of the many commercial tie-ins back in the 1970s was a novelty album. They wanted me to make a record, and I told them I can't sing, Winkler laughs. And they said, don't worry, You'll sing one note, and when you hit that perfectly, we'll go to the next note, and we'll piece it together. I said, that would be a lie. You can't do that. So they put out Fonzie Favorites. That album is notable for its jacket having a cutout in the back so that it could stand up on its own, as well as as a fan photo of the Fonz, complete with a superimposed button on his jacket that says, sit on it but the fans are the reason that Winkler's coming to Denver and he says their connection to his career at this point is all over the map. It depends on their age, he says. It starts with Happy Days, but then there's Scream, Waterboy, Arrested Development, Parks and Rec, and now, of course, Barry. And that's only a crib note of the list of career highlights for Winkler. His stardom has been quite a ride though not on a motorcycle which Winkler unlike his most famous character didn't know how to operate I got my first job in Hollywood on the Mary Tyler Moore show Winkler recalls I had seven lines a really minor character I was just happy to be working doing what I dreamed of doing two weeks later I got the Fawns. it was that quick and all of a sudden it exploded and here I am today But it wasn't always smooth sailing for Winkler, even after the massive success that was Happy Days. I figured, well, I'm known in 126 countries, I've got this beat, recalls Winkler. And of course, people would then not hire me because I was the Fonz. He'd become, as it happens sometimes in Hollywood, a victim of his own popularity. For some performers, that's the end of their story outside of maybe a reunion special or a guest appearance on a sitcom or game show. Winkler instead chose to reinvent himself in Hollywood. I started to produce, Winkler says, and the first show I did was MacGyver, a show that would last for five years and become a TV legend in its own right. Winkler also made a name for himself in voice acting. Despite an early start with the popular series of educational cartoon shorts Schoolhouse Rock, in which he played a Fonzie-style guy learning about gravity, Winkler says that breaking into voice work took considerable time. It's just such a very small world, he says, but I love it. What began as a starring role in the Hanna-Barbera Saturday morning vehicle Fonzie and the Happy Days Gang expanded to include South Park, Clifford the Big Red Dog, Duck Dodgers, Batman the Brave and the Bold, all the way up to his work on Rugrats and the legend of Vox Macchina. I have the best time, Winkler says. Back in 2003, Winkler also branched out into children's books with partner Lynn Oliver. The series was based on Winkler's own experience with undiagnosed dyslexia as a kid, and the books themselves are printed in a typeface designed by an artist in Holland who had dyslexic children and wanted to make it in a style that they could read. I have parents now who come meet me with their children and the children tell me yours is the first book I was able to read. I mean, what a great compliment," he says. Winkler and Oliver have now produced 39 books, 28 of them in the Hank Zipser series. Winkler also has an autobiography coming out in October and says he'll be bringing some of his many books to Fan Expo for fans. I've been to Denver many times, Winkler says. Not only because it's a great city in its own right, but also because I travel through it to get to trout fishing in Idaho. Winkler is an avid fly fisherman, but admits he doesn't tie his own flies. I know my limitations, he laughs. Writing is clearly not one of them, as evidenced by his 2013 book of photography and philosophy, I've never met an idiot on the river. I mostly stand in front of the table when I'm at events like Fan Expo Denver, Winkler says. I don't sit behind a table. I want to be standing and looking at everybody eye to eye. And the warmth that I feel, the genuine warmth, is a gift that you couldn't get in 2,000 birthdays. It's the fans that matter, says Winkler. Without them, the show wouldn't go on. Henry Winkler will appear at Fan Expo Denver on Friday, June 30th, Saturday, July 1st, Sunday, July 2nd, Colorado Convention Center, 714th Street. Sad Boy Creamery is an LGBTQ owned ode to nostalgia by Gina Parker. We want to be the ice cream you can grab when you're crying on the couch after a breakup, in times of celebration, and everything in between. We're here for all the fellow sad boys, says Michael Kimball, a chef, recipe developer, and occasional Westward contributor who started the melancholic ice cream brand Sad Boy Creamery in February and sold his first pints in May. Now, playful flavors like Rainbow Unicorn Sherbet and Dirty Earl, an Earl Grey tea ice cream-based play on cookies and cream, line the freezers at a space above City O City at 206 East 13th Avenue where Kimball works his one-man ice cream shop out of a studio pints can be pre-ordered online from the sad boy website and picked up every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. when he's not handing out ice cream Kimball spends his time researching and developing new flavors with a focus on paying homage to his childhood favorites We hear that a cookie crisp inspired flavor is in the works. It's important to take those simple nostalgic flavors and begin to elevate them, Kimball says. As we mature and become adults, our taste buds and palates mature with us and often those childhood treats like Dunkaroos that you knew and loved as a kid fall short when eating them in your twenties. Kimball whose mother also works in food research, used his food science skills to create perfectly thick and creamy ice cream. He explains how he tried various traditional techniques for making gelato, ice cream, and custard, taking the best parts of each frozen treat to achieve his perfect pint. Through testing different churning methods and various ratios of milk and cream, he was able to nail down his technique. Beyond the product itself, Sad Boy is probably the gayest ice cream in Denver, Kimball says. There is a lot going on right now in political and social spheres regarding LGBTQ plus issues and I'll always be an advocate for my community and that will manifest itself in the voice of Sad Boy and the choices I make in operating it. Looking forward, Kimball is excited to develop more nostalgic flavors and hopes to start selling them in major grocery stores. A brick and mortar scoop shop is in the works as well. Kimball also teaches cooking classes out of Stir Cooking School, 3215 Zuni Street, on topics such as macaron and croissant techniques, and of course, ice cream making. For more information about Sadboy Creamery, visit sadboycreamery.com or follow it on Instagram at sadboycreamery. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell.